Did I hear some? Lee, it's me, Michael. Oh, Michael, geez, you're a little early. Huh? Uh, I'm not quite ready. Uh, uh, let me change my shirt for one second. I'll let you in. You got the coffee? Got you a cappuccino with an extra shot. Oh, you're great, man. Uh, just hang on for, you know, I'll, I'll get there as soon as I can. start with most people will go back and talk about your history and where it all started and your influences and things like that I want to start with the new record I want to talk about a twist of writ because it has a lot of history right and you know from songs you did back in the 70s to more current you naturally took a twist on some of your old favorites some of your listeners old old favorites how did this project come about what were you thinking what did you what were you looking to achieve here well, Michael, you know uh, better than most because we've known each other like a um, hundred years, and uh, we 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 started out together, right? I mean, it was like uh, I mean, I started out a lot longer than than you, and but when I did the Twister Rid, I think it um, you were very familiar with a lot of the territory because um, I did compose uh, several new songs for the record, but because it was a a bit of an anniversary uh, record for me. I started recording my first album for Epic Records in 1975, so 40 years ago, it's hard to believe. Right. And um, so, you know, what I decided to do was, you know, I've, I've, I think this album is about number 43 or something. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I just looked at the last four decades and I said, well, what if I were to, uh, take some some older tunes and not necessarily the the hits because the last thing I wanted to do was a, a best of type record and re-record old songs I, I wanted to I'm always looking to try to keep things as fresh as possible and challenge myself so I said but in, in the 200 songs or plus that I've written um, and the 40 some records that I've done over the 40 years um, you know there's there was some material that I thought could be very current for 2015 and, and onward and and so then I I started putting a compilation together of songs that I thought would be cool to read you know to look at to flip to deconstruct reconstruct and ultimately twist and uh, that's what we did and all the way back we have songs all the way back to my first album yeah and uh, a lot of players that were with you from way back then yeah I, I designed it um, the the newer material on the record was um, Recorded primarily with uh, great drummer Dave Weckl and, and fantastic pianist from Japan, Makoto Ozone, and one of my longtime bass players, Tom Kennedy. But the older material, I decided to put together just this ridiculously all-star band of some of the best players in the world, and I put together a 12-piece band. I wanted to record... It's it's a studio record, you know, with a great sound with my longtime engineer, Don Murray, but we I wanted it to record it live with everybody playing all the parts and, and flipping and twisting the grooves and the arrangements, but uh, everybody putting that energy out together. And so I did hire <clears throat> some of my old music mafia friends, Dave Grusin and Patrice Russian and Ernie Watts and Paulina DaCosta. But then I spiced it with some of the younger players, especially from the drum part where the, the drums are, are so important in this kind of music and driving the grooves. And so I, I put some young drummers uh, behind the machine there, Ron, Ron Bruner Jr. and Chris Coleman, and, and uh, the results were fantastic. Yeah, and, and the, uh, now, was a lot of it recorded in your studio? No, um, yeah, we, we needed, we needed a, a big studio. 
<laughs> yeah, we did a uh, we mixed it in my studio. The uh, we did a couple other little things. All the preparations were in my studio for the arranging and the um, the charts and any of the pre production, and then the the final mixing was in my studio. And I and I I think I did we did one or two little guitar parts, but about ninety five percent of the album is live, and we recorded it at uh, Sunset Sound in Hollywood and uh, United Recordings in in um, uh, Hollywood, which is just a, another fan, both fantastic studios. They they both have incredible history with, you know, the Beach Boys and the Doors and Hendrix and everybody recording at these studios. And and so we had this big room and and we had the horns right there in front of me and the percussion and and uh, double keyboards all the time. We had all these vintage keyboards with old Rhodes and clavinets and B3 organs and Wurlitzers and uh, the room was just full of stuff. It was so fun. Well, that's great. Well, what most people don't know is that you have a killer studio of your own. Uh, in fact, um, I remember the first time I came out to visit you, I stayed in your your condo with the studio next door and I was like, wow, this is, this is where it's all done, huh? Yeah. Uh, I've had a studio since 1985 and I think it was inspired ever since I was a teenager. I got really lucky when I was 16 and and I was in a band for one quick second and the producer of the band was going to be John Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas and we went up there to his and he lived in Bel Air, Beverly Hills. He had a huge mansion and 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 he was one of the first uh, apparently that had a home studio and it wasn't just any home studio it was a full-on studio upstairs and um, and it was just fabulous and it was, I was just so knocked out when I got to go up there and and play and then he, he asked me to stay for a day or two and I recorded a couple of tracks with the mamas and the papas then but uh, ever ever since I saw that studio it was my dream to have my own studio so in 1985 I did that and uh, the it's been in this uh, condominium uh, which it just happened to work out because it was isolated enough that it didn't bother anybody, fortunately. <laughs> well, now, back in those days, I'm assuming that's a, about the time you met Dave. Tell me, when did you meet Dave and how did that happen and how was that turned into a lifelong friendship, not only professionally but as friends? Yeah, just socially, too. He's like my best buddy. We're talking about Dave Grusin and, and uh, Dave was... Always this incredible film composer, TV composer, uh, record producer, and just incredible pianist. And uh, he um, he had this ability to to have so much strength on so many things he did. So when I was a teenager, uh, he was writing for all these TV shows, and and uh, and and I would hear this great jazz guitar player named Howard Roberts like just blazing over the top of these scores that Dave was writing and I said wow who's this guy that's letting this my one of my favorite jazz guitar players play all this stuff on his TV show and I and I looked it up and I saw that it was Dave Grusin and then I started to go into the clubs and occasionally he'd be playing <laughs> and then finally um, I got a chance through another Brazilian guitarist the great late Oscar Castro Neves to uh, record with Sergio Mendes and I was 19 I believe and so it was Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66 and Dave had done a bunch of the original hit records for uh, Sergio. He had arranged and played on Masquinada and Fool on the Hill, all those great tunes, those early hits that <clears throat> Sergio had. It was a lot to do with Dave Grusin. So uh, one day I went to a party at, at Sergio's house and 
and uh, Sergio's band was there and a whole bunch of musicians and Sergio also had a studio in the back and everybody was playing and uh, there was Dave Grusin and I met Dave also the great composer Antonio Carlos Chobim was there I got to meet Chobim that night so that was a <clears throat> huge night for me and um, Dave soon um, started using me on his film scores and um, uh, I, I was 19 or 20 by that time and and the floodgates opened for me far as um, other sessions because Dave was so respected in LA that uh, people said well who's, who's this kid he's using and, <laughs> and uh, so that kind of opened the door and then he started playing live with me and then he was he started recording with me so I mean he's on my very first album he's been on almost you know not all my records but just about and and then he formed uh, GRP records with his uh, great uh, partner Larry Rosen who just passed recently uh, unfortunately and and uh, and so they formed uh, GRP records and Dave and I finally in uh, uh, Dave and Larry were involved in my early 70s records and then by the time GRP was starting to really grow up and and start to put out digital records at that time and finally digital CDs um, we did Harlequin in 1985 and that was nominated, won a Grammy nominated for four and, and sold almost um, a half a million copies and, and uh, it, it was a big breakthrough for GRP yeah now Harlequin I remember, you know, like it was yesterday when it came out. That that was kind of a, a watershed moment for both Dave and you in that it was a crossover album in that it was Brazilian, it was contemporary jazz, uh, there were vocals, uh, some in Portuguese, uh, and it seemed to be the record that became not only uh, so identifiable with both of you, but both of you separately and together. Yeah, that really uh, cemented. Uh, I mean, we had already worked together for years before that, you know. But uh, but that was the first record that we really did together. And before that, he was playing on my records. I was playing on his records. I was playing on his film scores. He was he he was helping me co-produce my records. But this was our record together, and it was a very interesting time because uh, through our percussion, percussionist friend Paulina da Costa. Years earlier, I had met the great composer uh, Ivan Lenz from Brazil, and uh, and then Quincy started working with Ivan Quincy Jones, and and Quincy and he was using Toots Tillman and Ivan and doing I Ivan's these fabulous tunes, and and then pretty soon Quincy was uh, recording with uh, George Benson on "Give Me the Night," and I was heavily involved in that album, kind of designing. George's guitar sound a little bit. George always kind of trusted me to help him out there, and and I was playing uh, rhythm guitar on the sessions, and and then Yvonne was uh, on the the record as well. So then at that point, I told Dave Grusin about Yvonne, and he wasn't so familiar with him yet, but he soon was. <laughs> he soon became, and um, we centered the Harlequin record around you know Yvonne's vocals, Yvonne's tunes, and uh, several of my tunes and Dave's tunes, and. It became a, a, a very strong record for us. Yeah, that that was that was certainly wonderful. One that uh, has stood the test of time. You can put it on today, and it it absolutely sounds as fresh as it did back in the early '80s. Thank you. The um, speaking of uh, Quincy, um, you played on a couple of Michael Jackson records. Is that right? Well, I, you know, I didn't play on the 
off the wall or thriller. Uh, the funny thing is, is that by that time I was when when they really started to make those records, I was kind of moving on to my solo career. But I worked with Michael and the Jacksons when Michael um, on a couple of those early early records when he's like. 12, 13 years old, and then uh, I even worked with Jermaine on one of his solo records, and and uh, so you know, of course, I knew the whole gang, and and uh, and then right around that time, I I was recording with Quincy on many of Quincy's projects, and and then on some earlier projects with the brother John, brothers Johnson, and yeah. and uh, you know, I th I think I I learned from Quincy from hanging out with him so much, and we're still dear friends. Uh, he was such a great producer. You know, and I would go up to his house and just kind of be a fly on the wall sometimes, and and um, it was so great because he he was very influential in the way I produced records. Yeah, yeah, and the um, you've produced and have played on a lot of commercial, very pop, very successful records. Uh, what what were some of your favorite projects you worked on that you you weren't necessarily the featured artist, but you made a contrib contribution to those records and they became hits. Well, uh, for sure, you know, Quincy's projects, uh, especially uh, the Brothers Johnson with uh, Strawberry Letter 23, and that's, that's me all over the guitars on, on the big solo there. And then um, Pink Floyd, The Wall, and um, that was a very different project for me. And um, again, when they hired me, um, Bob Ezrin said... Uh, he said, Lee, we, we, we really need some additional work uh, uh, on, on the, the Pink Floyd project here. Would you like to join us? I said, oh, yes, of course. You know, it would be an honor. And, um, and then he said, well, here's the thing, though. And this was before CDs. It was still just vinyl. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, we don't think we can. There's a couple other people that are going to guest on the record, you know, just a couple of you know studio players, but we got to make it feel like it's still a band record, so we probably can't give you credit. And uh, I said to Tim, I said, uh, "Do I still get paid?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Oh yeah, we'll take care of you. Good." And I said, "No problem." So then uh, we did the recording. It was a great experience. And then years later, when the CD came out and things were a little looser, they put all the credits of the. Of the uh, the ghost musicians on the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, let's let's go back to those really early days. You know, there's the the legendary baked potato, uh, and you were known as a performer who frequented that place. I, I, if I recall, it was on Tuesday nights. Absolutely, <clears throat> and this was a club in Los Angeles, still there. It's been there close to 50 years and uh, or maybe they, I think they had their 50th year anniversary and so uh, we started playing there in the early 70s it's a it's a room that holds about a hundred people at the most it's a small room sounds great and uh, it hasn't changed in all those years and so we started playing there every Tuesday for five years and that was actually where right prior to that I was playing at another club that a lot of studio musicians used to come into and and I got my start at another club called Dante's and that was just down the block uh, in North Hollywood and and uh, why I back up to that club is that I was I got a shot to play there and one night <clears throat> drummer Harvey Mason came in and I didn't know Harvey at that time and he um, 
he was already a little ahead of me um, age-wise and, and career-wise, and he was already playing with Herbie Hancock, and he had just done Chameleon and the Headhunters and that, that great album that Herbie did. So everybody, when I was playing on the break, they said, hey, man, Harvey Mason's here. I said, who's Harvey Mason? And they, they said, you know, the drummer on Headhunters. And I said, oh, wow, cool. So he came up to me and introduced himself, and he happened to sit next to my dad that night at the bar, and he didn't, of course, know my dad. My dad didn't know him. He said, what do you think about the kid playing guitar? <laughs> and uh, that was my dad. And uh, <clears throat> so um, Harvey took an interest, and he said, yeah, let's get together and play. So we moved over to the Baked Potato, and at that time he said, I think I can get Dave Grusin to play with us. And I had just met Dave at that Sergio Mendes party. And so here I, here I was, 19 or 20, and uh, Harvey's joining me, Dave Grusin's joining, and, and then uh, Ernie Watts, I met Ernie Watts, and then Patrice Russian, and then uh, Dave's brother Don Grusin, and, um, and then uh, uh, Patrice Russian started to join us occasionally, and then Anthony Jackson moved from New York, great bassist, and mm. Abraham Laboreal was in the mix, and it was an incredible period because um, all these musicians would come into the club, and and the the contemporary jazz and the fusion, all that stuff was really just starting in those early 70s. So we wouldn't play until 10 o'clock at night. And sometimes they'd lock the doors at 2 a.m. because the liquor, the liquor license stopped at 2 a.m. in L.A. And we'd still play till 4. <laughs> and, and, um, and then, but prime time in the evening, um, after, after hours, Al Jarreau would come in and sit on the side of the stage and get a microphone and pretend he was the percussionist and he didn't have a deal then that's how far back it was he this was prior to his Warner Brothers getting signed and then Joe Sample the great late Joe Sample would be hanging out then sometimes Bob Dylan would come in and sit in the corner and we could never figure out you know what Dylan was into but he kind of liked all the guitar stuff you know wow. and um, and Clapton and Jeff Beck and uh, just all sorts of people would uh, roll through there and we did it every Tuesday night for five years Wow, and, and and if I remember in those days, um, you used to do a, a a kind of a rare type of recording, and that was uh, direct to disc, where you were with a lot of the musicians you just spoke of. You made these albums that were, you could explain it better than I can. <laughs> well, during that time of the baked potato, um, this Japanese guy started coming in it uh, quite regularly, and is. Um, his name was Toshi, and, and uh, he worked for JVC Records in Japan. And uh, nobody really knew about Japan then. Japan was kind of off the radar. Of, of course, now it is the second biggest music market in the world next to the U.S. And, and so at that, he came up to me and he said, we would like you to do a direct-to-disc for JVC. And first I said, well, what is a direct-to-disc? And he said, in th those days it was vinyl. So this was 1977. And um, he said, well, this is where it's an audiophile record, and we, we use the, the best vinyl and the best equipment known to man, and, and you have to record the whole side of the record live, and we record it right onto the master, the mother, the mother lave, onto the mother disc. And that means the engineering, the mixing, the compression, the performance, everything has to be done at once. So the, once the record is is moving, it's going around, it, and it's cutting the grooves, it doesn't stop until the end of the record. So if you have four songs on side A, you had to record four songs in a row, including as little time as possible, you know, five seconds between tunes. So if you go from 
a really uptune, funky tune to a ballad, you have to change your head within a few seconds. <laughs> and uh, so it was, and, and if somebody makes a major mistake on the fourth tune, at the almost at the end of the the side, you pretty much got to start over. Right. And, right. and uh, so it was it was tremendously hard uh, work, but incredibly challenging. And and I loved doing it. It was like because you just had to have everything happening. You know, you had to be firing on all, all cylinders. And so we did the first record, and we used uh, it was called Gentle Thoughts, and we used that title from one of Herbie Hancock's tunes, and. <clears throat> At the time, I had just also signed to Elector Records, and there was a great president who's still with us, and he's retired now, but his name was Joe Smith, and and uh, Joe was just this fantastic guy, and I had just signed the deal to Elector Records, and I was going to be there for seven years, it turned out. But I said to Joe, I said, this company, JVC in Japan, wants to do a, an audiophile record. Is that okay? He said, yeah, as long as it doesn't come over to the States. He says, yeah, it's fine. And so we did this record. It became this it took three days. One day rehearsal, uh, the second day was record the A side, and the third day is record the B side, and the record's done. You know, it's already even pressed, you know, because it's on the mother lave. And um, they sold this record for $50 a shot, and it sold 100,000 records right off the bat. <laughs> and um, do the math, it was, yeah. you know, it was a very successful record. And I had never been to, well, I'll take that back, I went the first time with Sergio Mendes to Japan, but by the time I had gone this time, uh, all of a sudden when this record came out, I was pretty much a star there, and and you know there was <laughs> banners at the airport and and uh, girls waving flags and stuff. It was hilarious, and uh, so uh, you know I, I had no idea how successful it was going to be. So for the longest time, I had two deals at Electric Records and JVC. So wow. those those were the days. Well, it, it, you know, it seems like. Uh you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. Uh, that may have been the beginning of your kind of studio and producing shops with all of the preparation that needed to go into those recordings. And what a lot of listeners may not know, and, and, and to emphasize, these recordings were done without stopping except for a few seconds between the songs, no overdubs, uh, no second chances. No fixes, no, yeah. nothing. It was what it was, yeah. Well, and yet it is a studio recording, so it's it's you hear everything you know every little detail is in fact the sound is is superior because it's being cut right onto the lathe so sometimes on a live record you know you've got the audience mixed in you've got the the microphones with the ambience of the theater or whatever you know you can get away with a, a few mistakes and nobody really hears it not on these records <laughs> and i remember listening to those records and between the tracks you could hear people moving around Oh yeah, you get shuffling music paper, and you know, <laughs> and then they finally figured out. We did two or three of those, and they finally figured out that they could press the button to hit. Well, in between songs, they could press the button to to actually stop the lave, but the lave was still turning, and it would start to slow down, and and it would buy us a few more seconds, and then before it stopped, they'd hit they'd hit the the on switch again, and and the thing would keep going <laughs> so wow. that so we had about seven or eight seconds in between tunes most of the time <laughs> well i i was one of the ones who bought those records uh, yeah. <laughs> they were great records and then it you know that paved the way uh that was late 70s and then uh dave grusin and his partner larry rosen larry was an engineer at that time and he was also a complete tech head and we started to do 
the first two-track digital recordings. Now, this was before CDs existed. I mean, technically, I think CDs were invented in the 70s, but um, they didn't start to come out until the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, we, but we were starting in 1978 and 79 to do two-track uh, recordings. And so, it kind of evolved from this audiophile vinyl recordings uh, the direct-to-disc is what they were called. All of a sudden, we're in New York at Electric Ladyland, which is Jimi Hendrix's old studio, and Larry is recording to this two-track digital called Soundstream. Mm-hmm. And first, we recorded Dave Grusin's Mountain Dance, and then my record, Rio, which was in in part uh, con- in conjunction with now with the Japanese company because they were also into all this audiophile stuff, right? So... Um, they helped finance it, and so we we did a two-track recording in New York. Uh, my tune, Real Funk, which featured a 19-year-old bass player named Marcus Miller at the mm-hmm. time, and um, Dave and uh, several people and myself, and uh, and it it was phenomenal because up until that time we were recording to 24-track tape, um, and and you would hear all the hiss and the the analog tape, and of course it sounded fantastic, but it was a noisy process mm-hmm. and, and when digital happened we were just so knocked out because there was no sound except the sound of your instrument and so we were just it was just dead silence and so we were just like blown away with this and uh, when we went to do the mastering we had to go out to uh, Seattle uh, excuse me to uh, Salt Lake City and um, we had to go to this laboratory where the guy the guys literally had white coats on you know and they were scientists pretty much down in this basement <laughs> and they had to transfer these uh, ones and zeros to um, back to the vinyl you know because CDs were not being manufactured yet they were digital madmen yeah digital <laughs> madmen <laughs> the, the, um, you know as far as the technology you know I've always known that you you love technology but even before technology first and foremost you're a guitar player in fact not just a guitar player. I remember before before we met, um, you winning guitar player magazines polls for the greatest you know, session player in the world, and, and it happened more than once. Um, what was that all about? Because you have actually been one of the few guitarists, technically proficient, award-winning, guitar aficionados recognize you, but you were able to do something that a lot of guitarists would maybe similar types of approaches to the guitar have not been able to cross over and reach a bigger audience. What was your secret? Well, I think, uh, first of all, just the, the love of many different kinds of music. Um, I can back up to the way I kind of grew up listening to music, but then also the education. <clears throat> you know, generally, I, I was I was a geek far as studying ever since I was a little kid. I started playing the guitar when I was eight, and uh, that was the 60s and you know it was just a, an incredible period of the guitars on in every style of music you had l- legendary guitar players playing you had in jazz you had Wes Montgomery Kenny Burrell Jim Hall Joe Pass uh, all these it goes on and on just great players in rock Jimi Hendrix was coming and Jeff Beck and Clapton and and on you know, the blues you had BB King in his prime and Albert King and John Lee Hooker and the classical you had Segovia the greatest classical guitarist on the planet um, still yep. <laughs> and 
uh, flamenco, you had Sabicas, and uh, country, you had Chet Atkins. It was just, it went, and the, the folk music scene was huge. And so I was just listening to, to every style of guitar, and all those styles sort of seeped in. And I think that's also why I was a successful studio musician. But I loved composing. I loved um, the way records sounded. I loved arranging. Uh, and so, you know, when I started producing my own records, and and I was very involved in my records from the very beginning anyway, but as I sort of morphed into becoming the producer, I always tried to separate myself from the guitar player. You know, it's like, okay, now Lee Rittenauer, the producer and the arranger, is going to produce Lee Rittenauer, the guitar player. And let's see where we can take this. Because sometimes when people self-produce themselves, they get... You know, too myopic, you know, it just becomes this singular thing and they, they don't really see the big picture. So I always tried to separate um, looking at the, the big picture as to what the goal was and, and how I could make my guitar sound better and, 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 what if I, and try to be really tough on what songs were going to make it on the record and what the arrangements were going to be. And then I learned the, the casting of the, of the record I learned that from, for for sure, from from Quincy and Dave Grusin, but especially Quincy because he was, he could always cast a record so great. So he would call the right drummer, the right bass player, the right piano player, the right singer, the right horn players for a particular song, and he had, of course, the budget to do it. Yeah. And I didn't have I didn't have his budgets, but you know, in my own way, I've tried to do that over the years, all the way up to the Twister Rid album. I I made sure I. I pulled in my seasoned guys with the young guys and mixed the right elements. Wow. Well, the, the, um, and, and I saw that firsthand when I remember um, with your very first Twist album, when Twist is your beam and the process and the, the, the painstaking uh, way that you approach uh, an album from conceptually to musically to the musicians to even things like, I know you were involved in, the album cover designs. I mean, you you seem to, as a producer, have an interest in almost everything from A to Z for the a final release of the album. Yeah, well, I, and I think when people buy a Lee Rittenauer record, they're kind of getting the whole package. And my my fans who are, own more than one record know that that you know the guitar playing's in the center of it all, but. Uh, the producing, the arranging, the composing, the engineering. I've been with the same engineer, Don Murray, since about 1978, and, and Don and I are both geeks, and, and we love the sound of, of records. We love, I love making records, you know. It's like, like I, I mentioned at the beginning of our, our talk here, is I think this record, Twist of Rid, is around 43, and I was excited, as excited to make this record as I was my first record. And that's the way I feel about all of them. I, I just love the process. And, you know, I still make records. I still make, you know, that the uh, the sequence of the record is important. And th there's a very famous producer that I won't mention his name, but when he sequences a record, he thinks it's so un unimportant in today's world because people buy singles or they, they, they stream a single or whatever... <laughs> <laughs> whatever the right, right. Whatever the choice is these days, and um, they and so he thinks making albums is not so important anymore. So when he sequences an album, he writes down the name of every song and puts it in a hat and shakes the hat and <laughs> pick, picks out the songs, and that's the order. 
and right. and this guy, and this guy is very successful and very famous, and he does it for real. And it was like, wow, you know, it's like I. And, but for me, I'm like trying to think. Oh, which song should be first? Oh, that one's going to be ninth. Oh, it's such a good song. That's too bad. You know, <laughs> let's not bury that one. It's no, <laughs> absolutely. I, you know, I, I I agree with you. I think sequencing is very important. I think it. It, what it does is it, it almost makes you a DJ in a way. It's this, it's a, you're 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 creating something, presenting something to the listener. And if it's on the radio, you want to make sure that this track follows that track, and there's a nice segue from one to the next, and it takes you through a journey. Right. Well, I I think people still listen to more than one track at a time, and and uh, the fact that vinyl is coming back. Uh, even uh, this coming February next 2016, I'll I'm going to have a box set of uh, five of my uh, records uh, from the 80s, the GRP records uh, on vinyl. And and when you know when you put on a uh, a vinyl, you know for sure you don't. Uh, those kind of people who are buying vinyl now, and and it's a lot of young people. It's a resurgence. Are are back into vinyl. You you just don't put on the first track and then take it off. You know so. Um, so it it becomes a flow, and I think even with the streaming, you know, with the new ways of streaming, uh, you know, as the new Adele record comes out, you're not going to just listen to the first song. You know, you're you're going to like check check her out what she did for the whole record. Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Matheny once, and he said that the albums that he was creating at the time of transition back early '80s from vinyl to compact disc. He had a hard time mentally rethinking how their side A and side B has gone away so that side A did not have to be a concise package and side B concise package. It was now one big package. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, we always get these challenges. You know, if you're in the music business long enough, man, you've seen everything change and flip. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, uh, your alma mater is USC? That's right. University and, of Southern Cal, and, and you've gotten awards from them, alumnus of the year. Uh, and do you go back and teach? Are you involved in academia at all? Yeah, I, very much so. And uh, I did a, a week uh, residency. I think it was just last year. Uh, one of my good buddies, again, who's on the new record, Patrice Russian. Uh, she has a big position there, and um, a lot of the. Uh, it's a, it's a, just a great school, and and uh, I'm also very close to the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and. Uh, I, I have my, as you know, Michael. I have my six-string theory competition. Sure. It's a biannual uh, event, and uh, fortunately, jazz is. Uh, and Michael Fagan and the company is a sponsor, and and uh, that's we're going into our fifth year. Uh, actually, I think we're going to open the doors for contestants January fifteen, um, two thousand sixteen. And uh, again, Berkeley. Um, Gives four four-year scholarships, so that's you know we're upwards of five hundred thousand dollars, and and um, uh, Jazzis is involved, and uh, Monster Cable and Diadario Yamaha Corporation gives instruments and endorsements. Uh, last year, we were able to um, afford the winners the chance to go to the Montreux Jazz Festival and perform uh, with me because now it's not only guitar it's guitar piano bass and drums and um, so we had the whole rhythm section winners come to Switzerland and stay there for four days and and do the jam sessions and perform with me and uh, the the grand prize winner from 2014 Tony Pushta is from Hungary mm -hmm. he's on he's on my new record the twist of writ 
he performs on the last cut walls for Carmen, just him and I. And so I, I try to give what I try to do with my competition, and it's uh, anyone who's interested can check it out at sixstringtheory.com, and there'll be um, complete updates for the current year coming about November or December. We'll have the site all updated, but it, it, there's a lot of information up there right now. And uh, so Six String Theory um, uh, is something that I didn't want to just give a prize, whether it's money or you know something or an instrument. Uh, I wanted to do twofold. I wanted to help education-wise to get more mentoring and education to the people who won, so hence the scholarships to Berkeley. And then at the same time, I wanted to give them more professional experiences, something that they could hang their hat on and say, I did this, check this out. Mm -hmm. And so whether that means playing at a... Uh, last year we also had the Blue Note Tokyo as a sponsor and uh, I think the Blue Notes uh, in New York and and in Japan are going to be involved again this year and so I, I try every year there's different kind of prizes where the, the where I try to get the people involved either in one of my recordings or some kind of big performance or something to because I try to uh, to do a bit of a and ring you know and 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 helping people kind of get to the next level because it's it's so hard today because uh, the record companies um, are really not doing that as much unless you know you're straight up uh, maybe pop right but but if you're an instrumentalist uh, playing any kind of jazz or rock or blues or classical or acoustic um, you know that you you have to learn to do it your other ways now and and you know everyone can make a YouTube video but how do you how do you get that name out there that's the, that's the hard part yeah I think the you're a good example of how paying it forward works for everyone uh -huh. uh, you know it, it it gives young musicians a chance uh, to collaborate with with their their in this case their guitar hero it allows uh, the listeners to check out artists that they probably would have ordinarily not have heard and have the opportunity to hear right. and it also puts people like yourself in front of a new audience that says that's really cool how did I miss that but now I'm a fan exactly yeah and and you know after Michael after all these years you know because I've been doing this for so long now I I have I, f I figured out you know it's like wow I, I do actually have a lot of information that I I can help uh, some young musicians who are just starting out, and you know, you kind of, you, you definitely have been doing that for decades with your magazine. You always present new artists. The, the you know, you're not always just putting the most famous people in the magazine, and uh, so you're always introducing uh, new records through your sampler and uh, uh, and new reviews of of new products. So, you know, like you say, we got to push it forward, and and uh, uh, there's different ways we can do that. And I'm glad. I'm really happy to, to give back at this point because I've had such a, a gift given to me. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things we didn't touch on today, um, foreplay. Uh, interesting. Uh, 25th anniversary. Mm -hmm. uh, you are featured on the record. It's almost a homecoming for you, uh, being one of the founders of, of that uh, band that has continued. Uh, I, you know, the, the, what I should, full disclosure, uh, Lee and I, started a record label back in the in the 90s and I kind of felt like Yoko Ono uh, <laughs> <laughs> I broke up the band because <laughs> Lee you could tell the story I mean it was I it was it was a band that was really you know very very getting very popular and uh, you decided at, at, a, at to a very unusual twist if you would pun intended uh, you were gonna leave and pursue other things 
Yeah, well, the the band formed really quite innocently. It, the a foreplay formed kind of a, almost in the best way you can. Um, I was doing, uh, Bob James was out to Los Angeles to work on one of his solo records, and he was on Warner Brothers. And um, I knew Bob a little bit. I had just recorded with him a little bit prior to that, I believe. And uh, But drummer Harvey Mason had recorded on so many of Bob's projects. They were very close. And so Bob wanted to come out to L.A. and do a, a project, and, and he invited me and Harvey. And then he said, can you guys recommend a bass player? And we um, re- recommended Nathan East, who Bob, Bob didn't know at the time. So we get together in the studio, actually the exact same studio, United, which was called Ocean Way then, um, the same room that I recorded Twister Rid on in just a few months ago. Uh, so we're, we're there in... This must have been 1990, and um, just just this magic happened because Bob has a very strong personality. He's very recognizable on the piano. Harvey's one of the most recognizable drummers in the world. You can hear Harvey Mason play the drums, and within a few bars, you know it's Harvey if if you're into drums. Right, sure. <laughs> same, same same with my style, and Nate was definitely evolving into his style. So. So we had these four strong individuals, but the funny thing that happened when we started playing together, all of a sudden this band sound happened, and and it was like, wow, there was this fifth sound, you know, it, 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 and we couldn't explain how it happened. It just there was this thing that you can't you can't create that you can't. There's no way you can design that as a producer or an arranger. You you, you just can't. It just either happens or it's. Like when the four Beatles got together, I'm not saying the four play was the Beatles, but I'm, you know, when the, when the Beatles got together, they just that sound happened. You sure. know, it's like you work at it. You sort of there's certain things that you emphasize, but you can't create it. It's either there or it's not. So pretty soon, Bob said, "Look, I've been wanting to do a group album. Are you guys free?" And I happened to be in between my GRP contracts. I was going to resign with GRP, but I was in between. Everybody else was free. We and and we said, okay, well, let's let's all write some tunes, and we'll get back together in six months and and uh, figure it out, you know. And and so we got together at Nate's house in his living room, and everybody everybody brought in a bunch of tunes. I think I I brought in seven new tunes. I was so inspired yeah. by the project, and um, three or four of them ended up on the on the record, and uh, it became a platinum selling record, and it was uh, one of the biggest uh, jazz group records in in uh, history, you know. Yeah. And and uh, I think we were on the uh, we bumped, <laughs> we bumped Kenny G's uh, record that had been number one for like I don't know three years or something, and yeah. uh, um, we were, actually a funny story. We were playing in Texas at one point after um, the record had been out, and it was 33 weeks at number one on Billboard, and and there was an article in the USA Today uh, newspaper and and uh, saying how we had bumped Kenny G, and <laughs> and uh, this 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 couple came up to us prior to the show and we were all having dinner and they say, oh, you guys are foreplay. We're coming to see your show tonight. I said, great, great. So what do you guys each play? And a piano, bass, drums, guitar. Well, who plays saxophone? <laughs> and said, well, none of us play saxophone. And the guy had a cowboy hat on and and uh, he was kind of, you know, just one of those guys. And he, he said, well, what do you mean nobody? You got to have a saxophone. <laughs> I said, well, we didn't. And uh, hopefully he enjoyed the show anyway. But yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's... Um, it it was a really unique group, and so uh, I stayed for three records, and then as you said, Michael, uh, you and our other partner Mark Wexler, uh, which was from G- the GRP family, 
uh, we decided to form IE Music, which uh, at the time was with Polygram. And by that time, I had re-signed my solo deal, and I had just done Westbound. Uh, and, and then I was getting ready to do a duet album with Larry Carlton. And uh, it was it was just getting very busy, and, and we were producing. We had signed Al Jarreau to our label, and yep. I was doing the Twist of Showbeam, which had come out, which was a big record for us. And uh, so uh, I decided to uh, <clears throat> leave Foreplay because it was there was uh, also there was three record companies involved now, so it was getting very complicated. <laughs> and uh, so then Larry Carlton took over for years, and. Uh, and then finally, in recent years, it's been Chuck Loeb. And uh, so we all got together for the, their 25th anniversary album, which I think is just about out, right? It's, uh, I think it's coming out, if not this week, sometime this month. Uh-huh, yes. Yeah. And I, so I did a track, um, actually a song that Harvey and I had written uh, for me in the mid-'80s called Windmill. And we rearranged it for foreplay, and we were having a big laugh because if you hear that tune uh, on the four plays uh, Silverado record the anniversary record it it definitely sounds like four play <laughs> yeah, absolutely well it's funny uh, when I, I've been friends with Bob uh, for a long time in fact I was friends with Bob and you independently and I remember that's, that's before, right. before four play I was out to dinner with Bob and Judy one night and uh, he asked me about you and uh, he goes you know I I, I, I just did a session with Lee, and I said, "Yeah, he's, he's a friend of mine." He goes, "I I know he's a friend of yours. He's he's a really talented guy." <laughs> and I said, uh-huh. yeah, "Yes, he is." And then when I saw things start to matriculate with foreplay and 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 that professional relationship with you and Bob, I always had a smile on my face because I said, "Yeah, I remember in the very early stages, kind of the twinkle in his eye, saying, I think he was thinking about how to do foreplay.'" Ah, that's interesting. That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to Neil Sean the other day, and he he had mentioned what a uh, what a great time he had on your Six String Theory record, the last one. And uh, he's a uh, an interesting guy, and you probably know he has a real love for jazz and blues. Absolutely. Well, he's a phenomenal guitarist, and uh, in 2010, I I did one of the most magical records uh, of my career, and this you know there's there's only a few times you can really say that that and this was a record it had it was called six string theory and that's what my competition finally became based on but it was a record of all these legendary guitar players and i had i had actually that was another anniversary year it was 2010 but since i had started playing the guitar in 1960 it was um, it, it, it was actually 50 years it was a a 50 year uh, anniversary and of, of starting to play the guitar and so I invited Neil and um, Steve Lukather and B.B. Um, King and George Benson and Slash and uh, Joe Bonamassa and Robert Cray and Keb Moe and George Benson and uh, just uh, Pat Martino and uh, John Schofield and they just had all my my favorite guitar players on the on the record and Neil I didn't know at that point and Steve Lukather said I think we can get Neil Sean and and so Neil came in and he was just so wonderful man he's such a a strong player he's just ridiculous you know he's yeah. he's fantastic and a great guy and and very very respectful uh, of uh, you know of just the whole the whole scene of of rock and jazz and blues and uh, just such a good musician, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I don't want to uh, end this podcast without talking about Wes. Um, Wes Montgomery, your uh, one of your guitar idols, you named your son Wes, and rumor is Wes is becoming quite a musician himself. Yeah, uh, Wesley Rittenauer, he's, uh, he's a drummer. He's been playing drums since he was five. Uh, when he was five, I, I said, so Wes, you want to you wanna take some music lessons? You want to play a musical instrument? He says, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, well, what do you want to play? Do you want to play piano? And he said, no. Nah. I said, well... You want to play saxophone? Nah. I said, well, you want to play guitar? He says, at five years old, he goes, no, why would I want to play guitar? You play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I said, well, what do you want to play? He says, I want to play drums. And so um, he, he, he's been very steadfast about being a drummer and uh, just... Uh, he's, he's on the road with me all the time now. And, and uh, I mean, I try not to take him out all the time uh, because... Um, I, I, it's important for him to find his own path. He's 22 now. He's he's going to Japan with me next month, and he's going to Europe with me in February. And uh, but he's very he's very cool about like for instance, he was very involved in the Twister Rid album. He said, "Dad, you should get Ron Bruner Jr. and Chris Coleman and Dave Weckl to play on this record." I said, "Well, I want you to play a track too." He said, "No, no, no." He said, "This is not about." The, that he says you you should get these guys who are, who are on the cutting edge of the drums right now. He said I'm not on the cutting edge. I'm 22. These guys are superstar drummers and and they're on the cutting edge. They should be driving this this train. So he, so he's he, you know he's very responsible. He he you know he's he, and, and it's it's a while back he he didn't want to play New York City with me. Uh, he said. I said, you're ready. You know, you've been playing all these great gigs with me. He says, I want to wait before I play New York. You know? <laughs> wow, wow. Well, you know, I, uh, when I think about Wes, I mean, I, I still have, by the way, that incriminating video of you and me in a hotel room with our kids jumping up and down on the bed. <laughs> and um, I, I'll pull that out sometimes, uh, maybe when I need a favor from you or something. But <laughs> well, you know the difference between you and me, Michael. Is I, I have the one son, Wesley. You got about seventeen kids. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it's I, I do have a lot of children, but I always say they were my greatest accomplishment. Oh, you're a phenomenal family. Phenomenal. Well, well, Lee, always great to talk to you. You're a oh. good friend, phenomenal musician, great producer. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more offline. And uh, again, thanks for doing this. Okay, Michael, I just I need you need to promise me one thing: is that I, I need to reverse the tables on one of these podcasts. I want to interview you. <laughs> That's a deal. That's a deal. Uh, I, 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 your story is as fascinating as anyone's. And when I thought we were going to touch on a, a little more of you today, but we'll have to make a whole special out of it. <laughs> I look forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think with Lee Rittenauer. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by subscribing to our Jazz Is Not What You Think podcast or write a review on iTunes. You can learn more about Jazz Is by logging on to jazziz.com. You can also read more about Lee in our fall 2015 issue of Jazz Is. I'm your host, Michael Fagan. Thanks for listening. Hope to have you back for our next edition of Jazz Is Not What You Think. Hi, this is Lee Rittenauer, and you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. Mm-hmm.